All right, um, we're going to be once again in Judges 7, and we're just going to be picking up where we left off last week, which would be verse 24 of chapter 7. And I'm going to read from there all the way to chapter 8, verse 21. <clears throat> so once again, a nice long narrative of reading. So Judges uh, 7, starting in verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the country, the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us, when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will bring down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men, who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jangaba, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he, wrote, and he broke down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, These were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks, that were on the necks of their camels. So in these verses, we have the uh, conclusion to Gideon's conquest of the Midianites, which we started last week. Remember, last week is the famous 
text of him breaking the pots and uh, shouting a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon, and then essentially the Midianites all killing each other. Um, and then this week we actually get Gideon getting in on the action and him calling all the Israelites to finish off this conquest. I think uh, an appropriate title to this section of verses is God's people and disunity. Because something you're going to notice right away is despite the common enemy of Midian, you have a lot of disunity and a lot of grumbling in and amongst the Israelite people. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that episode of verses. The first thing that I think is noteworthy is this interaction that he has with Ephraim. So the first tribe that Gideon has conflict with is Ephraim. And you'll notice that 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 conflict comes out of the fact that Ephraim feels that they weren't included as much in the plan as they thought they ought to have been. So you'll notice Gideon calls all of the people of Israel to pursue the Midianites, and he specifically tasks Ephraim, which is a large tribe, he tasks them with uh, going and securing the Jordan River. So remember, the problem that they bumped into with the Midianites is these are people of the east. They cross over the Jordan River every single year, and then they raid the harvest fields of the Israelites. And so he's saying, since now we've defeated them, as they flee, they're going to try to flee back over this river. So Ephraim, it's your job to block off their escape, to cut off their route of escape. So this is Gideon uh, being wise and thinking ahead, these people are going to flee. Let's cut them off, not allow them to flee back into their territory so that they can just rally their troops and come back next year. So he's, he's being prudent about this. And you'll notice that they have success in this. They capture two kings of the Midianites. They capture... Um, Oreb, and they captured a man named Zeb, both of whom are significant men in, in the Midianite army. And they even name places after these two generals. That's how significant they are. You see, they name one place the Rock of Oreb, that's uh, in verse 25, and also in verse 25, the winepress of Zeb. And so these are victories that the Ephraimites want to remember that they've, they've had done. Uh, elsewhere in scripture, you'll notice the Israelites name things over victories that they they want to remember. So when they cross, for example, over into the promised land the first time, they build uh, a stone uh, pillar so that they can remember that God's faithfulness toward them. And, and much like that here, they're doing kind of the same thing. So they're, they're remembering this, but the victory itself is not enough. The victory over the Midianites isn't satisfactory to Ephraim. When they come back to Gideon, you'll notice that in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, they actually have a bone to pick with how Gideon ran the operation. They say to him, uh, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And so they, and it says that they accused him fiercely. Now, when you're thinking about this, you might be thinking, oh, that, that doesn't make sense. Humans don't behave like this. Humans don't want themselves to be in a place of priority when they're having victory over other people. Um, but of course, that is not true. Human nature is such that, that even in victory, even in mutual success, people still want preeminence in that success. You can think about if you've ever been on a sports team, you know, there's, there's going to be conflict even in your team having a victory. Someone still wants to be the MVP of that victory. And there will be jealousy and strife sometimes if that's not the case. Ephraim wanted to be not only part of the winning team with Israel, they wanted to be the most well-known of the winning team. They wanted to be known for having gone into the battle and led the charge. But instead, they basically just get to kind of clean up the remnants of the Midianites. And they didn't like that. Um, and Gideon, rather than just speaking truth to, to what happened, just saying, God told me to do it this way, and he told me not really to include you in this plan at all. Um, he, he doesn't say that, although he could have said that. That would have been a true statement. Instead, you'll notice Gideon is exercising an actually pretty impressive leadership quality. 
he, he turns away their harsh words with, with peaceful words. He actually compliments them, and in doing so, completely squelches their resentment of him. He says these words. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? In other words, what I've done is not as significant as what you've done. And then he, he uses this euphemistic statement. He says, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? What he's saying there is the victory that you've gotten, the gleanings that you've gotten, isn't that more significant than the gleanings that I've gotten? He actually says the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, meaning the fruits of Ephraim's labor, isn't that more significant than the harvest of Abiezer? And what he means by that is Abiezer is his tribe. Abiezer is a descendant of Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim are the two sons of Joseph. And Ephraim and Manasseh are the two tribes that are debating right now. Gideon is part of uh, the tribe of Manasseh, but he's a more direct descendant of Abiezer. And so what he's saying by uh, almost ancestral uh, lineage is he's saying your victory and the fruit of your uh, success is more significant than my victory and the fruit of my success. Now, whether or not that's true, the point is this. He's, he's giving them what they want. He's giving them the acknowledgement and, let's say, the, the honor that they thought they deserved. And his words turn away their wrath. He says, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? And it says, then their anger against him subsided when he had said this. Now, there's a, a proverb, Proverbs 15, verse 1, that says, um, soft words turn away wrath. And you'll notice that Gideon is employing that kind of wisdom here. He's not trying to be right. He's just trying to, as a leader, keep the people of Israel intact and working together. So that's the first conflict that you see. And I think there's much to learn about that, namely that when we even today, because we have nature like the people of Israel have a nature, and in the church we can get much the same way, where even in success, even in the gospel going forward, there can still be personal strife. I'll, I want my name or my ministry or my church to have preeminence over the whole mission. It's not enough that the gospel goes forward. It has to go forward also in my church with specific notes and branding and, and all these other things. And so we have a nature like the Israelites have a nature. And so in the same way that Gideon deals with Ephraim kind of stirring up strife, we can learn a few lessons. One is not to be like Ephraim, to resist that temptation. And secondly, that if someone uh, encounters us in that same way, we can learn from the wisdom of Gideon in, in terms of not just using truth as a hammer to, to beat them into submission, which he could have done, but instead, he uses soft words to, to turn away and to squelch that um, rebellion. This, the second set of conflicts happens with two tribes that, are, that exist on the other side of the Jordan River. So Ephraim blocked the Midianite pursuit before the Jordan River, but some of the Midianites still made it across the river before Ephraim could get to them. And there's two more kings that make that escape, Zeba and Zalmunna. Those are the other two kings. And so Gideon is going to pursue them. And now he's you know, probably been at this for a couple days. And as he crosses over the river, he talks to one of the Israelite tribes that exists on that end of the river, a tribe called the a tribe of Gad. So if you remember way back in Numbers, the tribe of Gad and Reuben decide that they're going to settle on this side of the Jordan River before the people enter the promised land. And Moses said, if you're going to do this, you have to, with your military and with your might, still help your brothers into the promised land, still help them to establish their, their nations. You can't just settle because your families and your oxen have places to be and to be safe. And they say, yes, we promise we will do this. This is all, by the way, in Numbers uh, 32, if you want to uh, recount that. And here he goes back to his brothers in the village of Sukkoth, and he essentially asks them for help. He doesn't say, summon up your warriors and come help me fight. He's asking for a much lower level of commitment, which is just, can you give me bread? 
so we can refresh ourselves so we can continue this pursuit. And they don't want to, they don't want to help him at all. They say, unless essentially no, but they say it more colorfully than that. They say, essentially, if you had already beaten them, we would help you. But because you're not, you haven't beaten them and because we don't think you're going to win, we're not going to help you. They say, are, are the hands of Zeb and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? The point being, we don't think this is going to work out. So we're going to hedge our bets and side with the Midianites. Because if we go against them and you lose, we're on the other side of the river. They're going to come for us first. And we don't have the river to protect us from seasonal assaults. So they are prudently or maybe out of fear saying, no, they're not going to help him. And so he gives them a warning saying he's going to flail their flesh. And then he, he goes to the men of Penuel and asks them for help. Kind of the same kind of thing. It says, they, it says actually that he has the same conversation. He speaks to them in the same way. And they have the same answer. We're not going to help you. And he says to them, when I come in peace, I will break down this tower. Meaning this fortification that you have, that you're siding with the Midianites now. When I beat the Midianites, because I'm, God is on my side. When I come back, you're going to be judged as an enemy of Israel. Because you've stood against, you've stood against Israel. You've stood with the enemies of Israel. So both of these cities are from the tribe of Gad. They've decided not to go with Gideon. And so you'll see that he warns them of the coming judgment. He says, when I come back, I'm going to judge you for your, uh, your siding with the enemy. And then he goes, he pursues the enemy. And you'll notice uh, the enemy is now down to 15,000 men out of 120,000 men. I just want to point that out. The providence of God that 120,000 of the Midianite soldiers have already fallen. And Gideon has yet to wield a sword in the assault. Uh, they haven't really done anything significant except pursue them. So God's providence is, is clear in this victory. In fact, even if you, I, I forgot to point this out earlier, but in, I think it's in verse 3 of chapter 8. Uh, Gideon, when he's, he's talking to Ephraim, he says, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian. So even Gideon is underscoring and emphasizing God's movement in, in the victory. And then uh, you'll notice that Gideon, just like what happens earlier, Gideon has victory. And he only has 300 men still up against 15,000 men, and he beats them. And so I think that's another, you could try to put together what kind of military tactic would lead to that success. But again, God's providence is what leads to that success. There's not really any way to make heads or tails of that victory apart from a sovereign and all-powerful God moving and working. And then it says, And Gideon went up the way, and Zeba and Zalmunna, and he attacked their army, and he captured the two kings of Midian, and he threw all the army into a panic. And then, as he promised in verse 13, He's going to come back and he's going to judge uh, Succoth and Penuel according to the words that he spoke to them. So the men of Succoth, remember what he said? He said, I'm going to thrash you with thorns and briars. And so he comes down. He actually captures a young man and he gets the names of all the leaders from Succoth. And then uh, he uses their same words against them just to remind them of why this is happening to them. And then it says, verse 16, and he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Now, that's a, a kind way of saying it. Uh, he, he beat them with, with thorns. <laughs> so that's, that's one way to learn, I guess. Um, what's, what's interesting here is Gideon, it doesn't say he kills them. It just says he beats them with thorns and briars, which seemingly is a better result than what happens in verse 17 to the men of Penuel, because the men of Penuel are killed. He breaks down their tower, which means he breaks down essentially their pride fortification, and then he kills them. And you can ask questions about, well, why does he act one way with one group and one way with another group? 
The truth is the text just isn't clear with us one way or the other. And the text doesn't say one was good and the other was bad. It just is essentially telling us what Gideon said he was going to do to both groups, he does to both groups. And so he punishes them both according to his own words. And he, he judges them essentially as outsiders because they've sided with the Midianites. So he, when he comes back to punish them, he punishes them as though they were outsiders. Uh, and I, I think if we're reflecting on this and asking the question, you know, what does this have to do with us? Once again, we, we have a nature like the Israelites have a nature. We have the same kind of sin problems. And much in the same way that it shouldn't shock us that Israelite people would side against God's people and with God's enemies because they think it's a safer bet. We shouldn't be surprised when the same kind of phenomenon happens in the church, where people decide either for prudence or for safety or for fear that they're going to side with the world instead of with the church, even while they would profess to be part of the church or where they would trace their lineage back to the root of the church. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't uh, be, a, be a big surprise to us. Because once again, we have the same kind of human nature. We have the same kind of sin tendencies as they do. And if you magnify that on a corporate level, you're going to see the same kind of thing. People haven't changed in the thousand, uh, thousands of years. Scripture is still accurate towards the nature of man. And so you, you, we will see this phenomenon even in our day. And no doubt we can even probably think of some examples of that happening. And then the last person or group of people that Gideon has conflict with is actually pretty straightforward. It's uh, found in verse 18 through 24. And it's Ziba and Zalmunna. And finally, he's not going to capture them. He's going to kill them. But what's interesting is he could kill them for a myriad of reasons. He could kill them for having invaded the land. He could kill them for having taken the harvest. But you notice that Gideon actually seems to have a more personal connection with these two kings. Namely, that at some point prior, whether this had been in a couple years, years past, you'll notice he, he inquires about them of the men that they killed at Tabor. And then uh, and he asks them, did, did you do this? And they say, yeah, we did. And they look just like you. And he says, well, that was because that, those are my kinsmen. Those are my brothers that you killed. And what's interesting about that is he's establishing a kind of a, a law case. He's examining. He, he gets them to confess to what they've done. And then uh, if you were to look, uh, for example, in Numbers 35 or, or in Deuteronomy 19, you have what's called the avenger of blood. The, the, the relative of someone who's murdered has deuter, uh, mosaic right and even a mosaic duty under the law to execute justice. And so his kinsmen have been killed. So Gideon would have been the preeminent tribesman and he would have been the one responsible for carrying out that judgment. He offers that opportunity to his firstborn who could have stood in that same position to avenge the blood of their fallen brothers. This young man is unable to. It, it seems that it's because of his youth that he, he can't bring himself to do it. And so Gideon does it. Gideon executes that justice. And I, I do want to be careful. It is justice that he's executing. It's not some petty killing that he's doing. These are people who've killed his kingsmen and under the Mosaic Covenant, they're deserving of death. And uh, we can examine those texts if you want to as well. But um, I just point that all out to say that this whole episode is not Gideon somehow being unjust. Gideon bickering with the people of Israel. You'll notice that he, he uses prudence with Ephraim. He uses swift and even good judgment, I think, with the people of Succoth and uh, Penuel. And uh, even more uh, wise judgment, I think, again, in verses 18 through 24 with the enemies of Israel. In all cases, I think Gideon is, at least up until this point in time, acting wisely, acting justly. Uh, it's not really until we're going to see next week where the text takes a very sharp turn on its account of Gideon and talks about all of the wrong things he does, where Gideon uh, takes a turn for the worst. Uh, some fun things to note uh, before we uh, close this out. Uh, Psalm 83 actually references these kings as uh, an example of what it would look like for God's judgment to come down upon people. 
So it's an imprecatory psalm, and the psalmist is calling for God to enact justice, as he did with Zeba and Zalmunna and Oreb and Zeb. So it's just a fun little uh, thing. It's Psalm 83, verse 11. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's just a, a pretty interesting picture that this is not even ingrained in Israel's history in the book of Judges. It's even ingrained in one of the Psalms, this, this story of victory. So it's a, it's a good example of what victory looks like for the people of Israel. Um, yeah, with that, uh, let me just close in prayer and then we can go to discussion. Father God, I am uh, thankful for your word and for all of the gleanings and all of the beautiful things that uh, you have recorded for us in history. Lord, I pray that we'd be sensitive to learn from it and to um, understand uh, what you have for us in the text, what we ought to uh, apply and what there is for us to obey and for us to see about you and uh, even about our own natures, God. Um, would you make us sensitive to those, uh, those truths? Help us to um, be discerning and wise and uh, always examining to see whether uh, we are in line with, with what the text is talking about or um, whether we have sins to confess in line with um, the characters in the text and what is being painted. Um, and Lord, ultimately, that we would be able to see you and, and you alone in the text as, as a God who is providential, who is sovereign, and who, who does all things according to the counsel of his will. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.